In Viking times, a thing was a gathering, a place where leaders and warriors could meet and talk. In the 21st century, our thing is a virtual place, where history academics and enthusiasts from around the world can come together to share knowledge. I'm your host, Miranda Schmiederer, and this season we're doing a deep dive into the Coppergate excavation. So hold on to your helmets for this episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. Today is our final episode on the Coppergate excavation. We've heard stories from the people who worked on the dig itself, and we've talked to people who work with the collection today. We've learned about the history of the dig, what was found, and how those artifacts are conserved. But the big question remains, why does it matter? To discuss that and more, we're talking to Sarah Maltby, Director of Attractions here at York Archaeological Trust. So the first question we've got for you is, before Coppergate, the history of Vikings in Britain was really focused on their invasion. Everyone saw them as warriors who were really only concerned with battle. But at Coppergate, we found very little evidence of that. So what kind of Vikings were living at Coppergate? So they were everyday folk, really. Um, They were families, they were craft workers, um, there were people who were possibly coming in from the countryside, possibly coming in from elsewhere, from from across the North Sea, for example. Um, But they were, as I say, they were everyday folk. They weren't, they may have been warriors, who knows? Um, You know, in a past life, they may have uh, come, fought, and then settled. But the evidence we found was predominantly or exclusively, I guess, everyday living. Um, It was houses, it was clothing, it was food, you know. So um, that's why uh, Coppergate was so important because it it was the first time that any archaeological excavation had found that extent of, of everyday life, really. That kind of reminds me of the interview I did with Judith Jesh, where she she kind of was saying like how we do have this image of like burly men as as fighters and everything. But of course, that doesn't represent all of the Viking men, first of all, but even the other half of everyone else. So it is good that I think we found all of that evidence at Coppergate. So then if all of these ordinary folks were living at Coppergate, where did they come from? Were they just from Scandinavia or, or did they come from elsewhere as well? Well, we think probably some of them were there already. You know, it was already a city. It had been established by the Romans, as we know, Zebra Arkham. Um, it continued through the years after that. We don't know a great deal about the Anglo-Saxon population of York or Eorthwick, as it was known then. We know some and we're hoping to find out more as a trust as we dig more um, sites in York. But certainly there would have been people that have been living there for generations, I would have thought. But yes, there were people there from the isotopic work that we've done and certainly on if you take one of the skeletons that we excavated in Coppergate and there weren't there were only two complete skeletons that we found from the Viking Age period in Coppergate this this was a, a female who we have done a lot of scientific analysis on we know a lot about her in ter- terms of her stature sort of the things that she suffered from because because she was she, she did have various impairments and, and difficulties I would say but we also know that she came from Norway um, in the work that we've done which is fantastic to know that you know we were getting a population from across Europe um, but we also think that our population in New York as it is now was made up of, of people from across the world who were traveling those who were able to travel anyway we know having looked at other collections of, of human remains 
in York and, and York and Coppergate is just a small collection, as I've said, you know, that there were people from other cultures, from other countries, not necessarily first generation. So we have a skeleton again in Jorvik who shows signs of being of African descent, but we don't know, if, again, if that's first generation or second or third, because, you know, we're, we're assuming that that people from, from other countries did come across with the Romans. So who knows? It's, it's just very interesting to note, I think, that based on the skeletal evidence and also the trading evidence that we have, that the population of York in the time of the Vikings was a very diverse one. And I think that's really interesting to remember and to focus on um, when we think about the world today, I guess. Definitely. It makes it feel less foreign. You know, if, if we look at the people from the past and they look like uh, our society does now, it, it doesn't feel like they were that far away after all, does it? Exactly. Exactly. And they you know, probably had the same concerns and uh, everything else that we worry about today. Not quite sure if they would worry about a pandemic. But <laughs> yeah, they, they would have been, I, I hope and, and think, you know, fairly similar to us. So in that kind of same vein, then simple everyday folks sort of thing like us, what kind of jobs did we find evidence for? What did they do for their livings? Well, we have a lot of craftspeople. So a huge proportion of the evidence that we have is for crafts such as blacksmithing, wood turning, leather working. Um, so we have that. And particularly in the reconstructions, because of the evidence that we found on this particular part of Coppergate, you know, we, we've we've got this craft working centre, really. Um, so we do have those people and the evidence that we have to reflect that are things like, you know, the in terms of woodworking, for example, we, we have the bowls and we have the cups in the record, which is, is an exciting thing because they're not often left. But we also have the waste. And that's why we know that, that we have these craftspeople working on that spot. It's not just a finished item that people perhaps have discarded or used in their homes and then, you know, tossed to one side or whatever. It's, it's actually the waste that comes from manufacturing these things. So we have blacksmithing waste, you know, we have the remains of, of, of ironworking, etc. In the fireplaces, we have, as I say, um, wood cores from bowls. We have offcuts of leather um, and bone and antler. So we know all these people were working in copper. But we also suspect and, and know that, you know, there were fishermen. We have evidence of fishing. You know, we have fishing hooks and we have thousands upon thousands of fish bones. So we know people are eating fish and uh, mussels and, and uh, all oysters and all that kind of thing. So there were fishermen bringing fish in from the sea as well as, as the rivers. Obviously, York stands on the ooze and the foss, so we know that there's a lot of fishing going on. So we have those kind of industries as well. And then, you know, uh, the women in the home, uh, you know, they had their own jobs to do. So that, again, we mustn't forget that that was really important because, you know, we have a lot of evidence for textiles and textile working. So things like loom weights and, um, and textiles themselves, actually. Um, so we know that these kind of occupations were going on in the home and that women played a very important part in all of that, producing these textiles that have been used for clothing or blankets. So, you know, all really important parts of Viking life, if you like, that all came together to, to build this culture that is then left in the archaeological record for us. 
I love that you mentioned the textile work because people wouldn't necessarily think about that when thinking of a traditional job. But of course, making fabric is very time consuming as much as any full-time job would be. That's definitely great to consider as well. That is another aspect of their lives. And God, I, and if I couldn't do it. If one article of clothing taking weeks to make would, would just about take it out of me, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, really important, I think. And we, we mustn't forget that. And, you know, it wasn't just the big cloth, the fabric, you know, that they're making into clothes, obviously. But, you know, all of that intricate decoration, like like the um, tablet weaving, which they would have used to decorate, to, to edge the edges of clothing, cloaks, etc. You know, the null binding we have in Jorvik, the only Viking sock remaining, which, you know, I, people should come and see. If they haven't seen the Viking sock, they need to come and see it because it, it, it is a unique object and it's been made really carefully. It's been darned by somebody really carefully. You know, it has this red band on it, so it probably had a red leg and you know and, and that that when you think about it as you say you know loads of work into that i've never tried nail binding i've seen our vikings do it and it looks complicated and i don't think i could do it similarly the tablet weaving again beautiful things that can be produced by by just you know this this sort of thread and cards some of which we've got left in the archaeological record it's really important and gives a real depth i think to who the vikings were what they looked like what was important to them that kind of thing i think Definitely. On that kind of similar note, then we found loads of rubbish at Coppergate, of course, that's, you know, uh, the majority of what archaeologists tend to find. Uh, A lot of it was from food production and um, consumption. So you mentioned fish and things like that. What, What else do we know was being eaten at Coppergate? Well, um, quite a variety. I should say, of course, archaeology is rubbish. Everybody says that. Um, so it is really important. And the reason why we know a lot about the Vikings who lived in, in Jorvik at that time is because of that environmental waste that has been preserved in the soil. So as you say, we have fish. And fish is a really interesting one because if you look at fish bones, actually, because it, it brings up other subjects. Um, if you look at the fish bones over time and you know, a few hundred years that the Vikings were in York, they, they get smaller. So actually the Vikings were overfishing, which is an interesting thing to think about today in terms of overfishing stocks, you know, now. So cod, which we've got a lot of bones from, got smaller over the two, three hundred years that, that the Vikings were in York. So fish, yes. Oyster, oysters, sort of shellfish, which we would think of a fairly exclusive and rich food nowadays, I think, but they're eating a lot of those. Um, but then meat. We've got an awful lot of of animal bone and also cooked animal bone to show that they were cooking it. So, you know, cattle, beef, uh, sheep, pork, all of the sort of regular foodstuffs, if you like. Um, But then we've got odd things like guillemot which I always found fascinating. Um, we've got bones from guillemots. So were they eating them? We don't know. Um, but possibly, you know, we, we have, have a lot of different animal and bird bones. You know, we've got chicken, we've got eggs. Um, we've done a lot of work on eggshell recently, actually. We work with York University um, to look at our animal remains in particular. And we've done a project on eggshell so we can we can tell what sort of chickens they had in uh, in Jorvik at the time. So there's all these types of things that you can find out from this mi- very minute evidence. I mean, we have seed crops, we have cereal, we have um, evidence that they were drinking beer, uh, wine. You know, it, it's a it's a really you know rich diet, I suppose. A lot of things have been wouldn't have necessarily been grown in the city. 
may have been grown outside the city and then brought in, we think, you know, by trade. So, yeah, it's, it's um, I think, really interesting when you look at the, the foodstuffs. And, of course, from that, from, from that, you go into our coprolite that is now shown in your victim was actually from Lloyd's Bank excavation. And in that, you can actually see what people ate as well. So um, it's not just the food evidence that shows you what people ate. It's other, other evidence as well. So the coprolite poo, if you like, shows you that they were eating grain um, and also that this particular individual who deposited this coprolite suffered from various intestinal worms as well. So we know that. And then when we look at pots, the other sort of evidence that you can find when you look at pottery from the period, again, using archaeological science, we can tell what they were cooking in those pots um, through the lipids that are left in in the pots, the fats. So recent studies, for example, we've looked at um, certain pots from from the Coppergate excavation and found that they were cooking meaty stews and leafy vegetables. All very obvious stuff, I suppose, but it's really nice to have that confirmed when you do the scientific analysis. So it's not only, as I say, the food remains, I suppose, that you find in the archaeological record, but it's other evidence that you found finding on other material that you might be digging up as well. I love the whole lipid thing. I'm not much of a science person, but so that just absolutely blows my mind anytime I hear about it, that just by looking at a thousand year old pot, you can know what was cooked inside of it. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So we excavated four tenements on Coppergate, places that were combined houses and workshops. Uh, What were the houses like and did they change at all over time? They did change. So uh uh, early period were these wattle houses. So that's very, very early that were kind of one story, although there is a big debate about whether later houses were one or two stories. That's something that's still kind of out there in the ar- archaeological realms of discussion. But the early houses were wattle. You know, there were, there were single room, single height, um, and we have a lot of evidence for those. We then have this point in time, which is around about 960, when we move from those wattle houses to timber houses um, using planks and boards. And it's a really interesting, and and it's work that we did and and looked at when we refurbished Jorvik after the flood, when we totally had to rebuild Jorvik. We redated the uh, reconstruction to around 960 AD, which is the period that the housing changed from this wattle structure to this timber structure, timber frame structure. And that date actually also coincides when Eric Bloodaxe, who was the last Viking king in Jorvik, got thrown out of Jorvik. So there is an idea that that actually coincided then, that change in buildings coincided with the changing leadership. So he was thrown out. Different earls came in. There was a new sort of land ownership, a new way of doing things, and therefore they cleared all of those original early houses and started to build this new um, design. So we've got both. When we look at the archaeological record, when we did the excavation, we found both. Um, and I think the most exciting, some of the most exciting photographs, actually, when you look at Coppergate, the the archive of Coppergate, the excavation, is seeing those timbers still in the ground. You know, sort of two, three foot high, and you just think. You know, they are a thousand year old buildings sitting there in the mud still for us to see. And I love looking at those photographs because they're they're just fascinating, you know, to have all that timber there. Um, And when you go into Jorvik and one of the first things you see is is an actual timber wall that we excavated and you can get up you know you can virtually press your nose against it so um, (laughs) I think that's great you know I I think it's um I just think it's really interesting but that's that's what we've got a whole sort of period and change in housing 
I love those pictures as well because it does look like that you're basically just in inside of someone's house more or less or like it's built, being built around you. It, it Like the timbers look like you could basically build a house out of them now. It's incredible. Yeah, exactly. They look solid. I don't think they are because they're actually full of peg wax. And, um, you know, when we conserve them, because actually when we dug them up, we were the, one of the first organizations to conserve the timbers in that way, which another story for another time, perhaps. <laughs> So obviously a lot of Coppergate was about getting this better kind of well-rounded image of what Viking life was like. And of course, life includes children. So what evidence do we have for children at Coppergate and what were they doing? We don't have any sort of skeletal evidence, any human remains of children. We assume children must have been there because the Vikings were here for 200 odd years. (laughs) There must have been children at some point. Um, What we do have is gaming evidence. Um, We have Nefertafel gaming pieces. Nefertafel, which is a form of early form of chess, really. Um, So games were being played. We have a really interesting find, which is is actually from um, a grave. Um, It's part of a coffin lid, I guess. And on that, has uh, somebody has etched in um, a kind of fox and geese solitaire game into, into that. And we have that in the collection to see. So I don't know if that was children playing that. We don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating story, but we, we've not really concluded what that is. Um, we have we have ice skates, but again, I don't think they're confined to sort of children. Um, we have adult sized ice skates. Oh, we do have small shoes, actually. One of the things we do have is a small child-sized leather shoe, which is nice. And we have a lot of shoes in the collection, which is unique to, to Coppergate because of the uh, because of the conditions of the soil. But yeah, a really nice child's shoe, which you can see in Jorvik. So a few pieces. I mean, we just have to assume that the children were there, you know, that they had a, a part to play. And we've looked at things like um, what would the children be doing, for example, in Jorvik in those days. And one of the things we talk about um, in DIG, actually, my sister attraction is that children, for example, would be working in roles with some of the craftspeople. So we assume that the blacksmith, and actually we recreate this on, on the set, the blacksmith has his son next to him and he's kind of teaching him the ways of the of the blacksmith. And he's, he's you know, and that probably those younger family members were in, involved in those crafting, you know, perhaps cleaning out the, the fires and, and, the, and that kind of thing. So we make assumptions, but I think they're assumptions that are quite sensible, should I say, because they must have been doing those sorts of things. So overall, Coppergate really significantly changed the way that people viewed the Vikings. Can you maybe sum up for us how it might have been before and then how it was after? How did our perception of Vikings change directly because of Coppergate? Well, I think the first thing to say is actually the excavation on Coppergate changed the way that people thought about York, because before we did the excavations on Coppergate, before we found all those remarkable finds from the Viking Age, uh, York was mainly thought of as a Roman city. You know, it, it has got Roman roots, obviously. But I think before we did the excavation, that was the predominant um, period in, in York's history that was, was recognised as the important one. And actually, when we dug Coppergate, that changed everybody's perception. And York now very much, I would argue, is a Viking city. And I think that is, well, I know it is to do with Coppergate because it was so important at the time and, and did change everybody's perception of 
of the city itself. But from a, a subject point of view, I think, again, you know, because we found the evidence that was every day, we haven't actually found a weapon in Coppergate. We've got an axe head, but that was probably, you know, for chopping wood or whatever. But we haven't got weapons. Um, we do show weapons in Jorvik, but they're from a collection from the British Museum. They were found down in the Thames. So I think before we found all that evidence and all that fantastic detail, intricate detail about Vikings' lives, you know, it was very much this perception of big burly blokes with horns on their helmets and beards. And, you know, the women didn't really get a look in. The children really didn't get a look in. And I think we've made people think. I really do. And, and I know when people come round Jorvik and, and look at the reconstructions, which is all based on the archaeology that we've done, I do think it changes people's minds. And as we talked earlier, about this idea that that Jorvik wasn't just, you know, Vikings with beards and helmets or whatever, that it was this mix of cultures, this mix of people from across the world. Hopefully that's changing people's perceptions as well, that it was this, this melting pot of cultures and people. And, you know, and I think that's what's really important and one of the important things that Jorvik has achieved, that, yeah, it's, it's changed people's minds. And that's great. And I hope we can go on doing that because, you know, we're finding more and more evidence. We're always digging things up as a trust, you know, and we are always investigating things, whether that's working with the universities or, or doing our own research, our own conservation. And I think one of the big things about York Archaeological Trust is that we can do that. And, you know, we continue to do that in the future. Well, that actually ties in really nicely with my next question. So obviously, our, our understanding of Vikings is still changing it, with new sciences as they develop and things, all these new techniques. We're constantly learning more information. So how has Jorvik changed since its original incarnation? Well, it is interesting because we've got photographs going back to 1984. So, you know, all the years that we've been open and it's and it's amusing and interesting to look at photo photographs. So Jorvik's had four different versions. Um, we opened in 1984, as I said, first time around. We've always had a reconstruction of a ride of, of the Viking city, which has always been based on the archaeology that we found there. But obviously techniques and uh, modelling and animatronics and how to replicate objects has changed. The ride itself has changed. We originally had one that ran on the ground. Uh, it was like a little box trolley. And now, of course, it's a suspended capsule that, that travels around the city. It's always been the same size. It's quite entertaining when you talk to people who remember the earlier versions of Jorvik, they, some of them think it was bigger. It's never been bigger. It's always been that size. But I think people's perception changed over time. We've changed the galleries. I mean, the galleries have changed probably more than than anything in Jorvik. Um, you know, different themes. We've, we, we've had all sorts of different themes in the galleries from um, looking at burials to looking at um, a theme about are you a Viking, sort of looking at place names, looking at other remains. So that's changed quite a lot. So we've, as I say, we've had four versions of Jorvik. The first opening in 1984, we changed again in 2000, opening in 2001. And that was a complete uh, revamp again. Again, essentially the same thing, just done with new methods. We slightly changed in 2010, um, just putting in some new galleries, changing the narrative on the ride as new research had come in and we felt that we needed to update things a little bit. And then most recently was in 2015-16, uh, reopening in 2017, which is when after Jorvik flooded uh, at Christmas 2015. And again, it's 
It's the same size. We have changed things, again, based on new research. So we've included a lot more about the the human remains because of the isotopic research that we can do now, DNA research that we can do now, and a lot of research on that environmental evidence that I've been talking about. So um, we put in new animatronics, for example, um, completely in um, 2016, working with a company from America who um, designed them with us so that we can get down to the most intricate detail on the on the figures that illustrate who the people were that lived there. And we put in a lot of other detail as well, I suppose, this last time around, uh, again, based on the research. So, for example, in the part of the reconstruction where you're looking at textiles and dyeing, uh, cloth, etc., we specifically researched the type of wool, what sort of sheep would it have come from, and we tracked and we found um, a species of sheep that exists today that generations ago would have lived in Viking times, the Herdwick. So we brought that in and we re- we dyed those uh, textiles with um, dyes that were based on the research that we've done on the on the dyeing evidence. So so it's it's all authentic in that part of it. I mean it's it's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't necessarily notice when you're going around the ride first time around, second time around, but maybe third time around. So we've put in a lot more detail this this time um, for this version of Jorvik. And we've also, of course, put live actors on the ride to portray our Vikings and train them to speak in Old Norse or Old English, which is very new. So we've done a lot of work on language this time around. I think the only thing, the one thing that has remained current is our man on the toilet, of course. So we have always had a man on the toilet in Jorvik. He has evolved into a into a uh, into a different figure each time, and this time he's actually got a roof on his toilet. So um, you know, we, we've kept things the same, if you like, that have been really popular and we're known for. We've always had smells, for example, people know us for our smells, but this time around we put in a lot more smells. We actually designed new smells to put in to illustrate more parts of the story. So we've got in this version of Jorvik, for example, a deathbed scene where we have a priest. Um, so we have an incense smell within that scene. So, you know, we've, we've introduced subtleties and new scenes, and new evidence and new research, and we continue to do that. So obviously Jorvik was a very multicultural place. There was a lot of uh, trade and things like that happening. We still have those connections, don't we, with people from other countries, other museums. What do we learn from each other? How do we grow from that relationship? Well, you're right. You know, we do have really good relationships and networks within the Viking world, which is it's a vast world. We are part of an organization called Destination Viking Association, um, which has about 50 members, you know, across Scandinavia, but also into Poland and Spain and France and America and, and all over, really, wherever the Vikings got to. We have now partners. And that has been a really good network to understand, you know, that that wider framework, if you like, to the Viking world. So that relationship is, has been really uh, important to us. You know, not only have we been able to see differences and add those into our story, but also similarities. So it's really interesting when you're talking to people from museums in Scandinavia and looking at their collections, you know, you can see where influence have come, come from. And I think that's really, really interesting when you're looking at our collection of objects. 
you know, that you can see where perhaps the influence for a brooch or, or something has come from because you see a similar object in a collection overseas. You know, we do have objects in our collection from um, Ireland, for example, Scandinavia. And when you go over to those countries, you can see where those objects have come from. So, you know, those links are really important. So it's great to have friends in those countries because they bring a lot to the museum. They bring a different perspective. So I think I think that's the important bit is widening the story by having those friends in, in different places that can tell different aspects of the story. Definitely. Well, that brings us to our very last question then. Is there anything else that you specifically want our listeners to know about Jorvik? So we've been closed, obviously, for the past year, um, more or less, on and off. Um, but we are reopening on the 17th of May. We, we have had to implement a lot of safety measures. So things have changed slightly. But in all of this, in all of this past year, what we've been really keen on is preserving the Jorvik visit, because I think we are known for the type of visit that we do. It's very interactive. You know, you can talk to a Viking. Where else can you do that? in this country you know and we've been really keen through all of this through the pandemic to maintain that because it is really important to us so when people come back they still will be able to talk to our vikings albeit through a mask initially but you know they're there and you can find out about the objects you can see those objects really close up yes okay at the moment we might not be handling those objects but in the future we will be The other thing that I think I need to talk about is the fact that actually now, because of the pandemic, we've we've done an awful lot digitally. So as well as coming to Jorvik physically, you can also come to Jorvik virtually. And that's been a real success story for the past few months, you know, particularly for schools and learners learning at home who can have an outreach in their own classroom and have a Viking talk to them directly. And I think that work that we've been doing over the past few months with our collection, with our team of Vikings has been really important to keep people engaged in the physical Jorvik uh, and to keep the stories alive really so we will keep going Um, we still want people to come back and visit us whether that's physically or virtually but you know it still will be that same exciting Jorvik experience which I hope they can everybody can enjoy. Thanks so much to Sarah Maltby for speaking with us today. We really hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into the Coppergate excavation. If you want to learn more why not visit in person? Book your tickets now at jorvikvikingcenter.co.uk. Come see where it all happened and check out these amazing finds for yourself. You'll even be able to speak to one of our Viking interpreters and learn more about Viking Age York. That's it for this season. Thank you once again to Rachel Cutler, Chris Tuckley, Ian Panter, and Sarah Maltby for coming on the show, and to Lucas Norton and Max O'Keefe for research assistance. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We're moving on into a fortnightly release schedule for the next couple of months, but stay tuned as we talk to our fascinating guests such as Bruni Boast, John Airy, and Matt Lewis. Check out our Instagram, at Jorvik Viking, for hints about all of their episodes. Did you know that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is an Audible associate? Click on the link in our show notes or go to audibletrial.com forward slash Viking Thing 21 to sign up for a free 30-day Audible trial. When you do, you'll get a free audiobook download and you'll be supporting your favorite Viking podcast. Even better, the audiobook is yours to keep forever. No strings attached. This time, we recommend Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price. Based on the latest archaeological and textual evidence, Neil tells the story of the Vikings from their own terms, their politics, their cosmology and religion, and their material world. 
More than just the stereotype of violent sailors, the Vikings exported new ideas, technologies, beliefs, and practices to the lands they sailed to and the people they encountered. In the process, they themselves were changed too. Thanks for listening to that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support that Jorvik Viking Thing, please visit jorvikthing.com to make a donation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast is a production of the Jorvik Group and the York Archaeological Trust, researched by Miranda Schmiederer and Ashley Fisher, written and produced by Ashley Fisher, sound designed and edited by Miranda Schmiederer.